You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Chen. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. So let's go ahead and talk about the book of Leviticus because this picks up right where the storyline from Exodus leaves off. And I know we kind of talked about this during the quiz time, but if you're just joining in, I think I can give a little bit more detail here. So let's think about the book of Exodus. The children of Israel have been freed from slavery in Egypt. God worked miracles on their behalf And he did that for a specific purpose. He says, I'm doing this to prove to you that I am the one true God. You have no reason to worship anybody else. You have no reason to trust anybody else. You have no reason not to trust me. At the base of Mount Sinai, God enters into a covenant with his people. Now, this covenant is an extension of the covenant that he first gave to Adam in the garden. And then he extended it to Noah, and then he gave it to Abraham's family. The covenant um, that covered many different things, how they would be fruitful and multiply, but really what it was is they were going to be blessed, and then they were going to be a blessing to others. They first as a family would be blessed, and then therefore they were going to be a blessing to all nations. Now when God speaks to them at the base of Mount Sinai, And he says, I'm renewing my covenant with you, or I'm I'm extending it to you. Here's how he says, here's how you are going to be blessed. You are going to be blessed because I am going to dwell among you. I've proven myself, he said in Exodus 19, I have proven myself that I am the Lord and there is none else. I have proven to you that all of the earth is mine. It doesn't belong to anybody else, even though... I own everything on earth. I want you to be peculiar. I want you to be separate. I want you to be different. That was why the family of Abraham, the Hebrews, the Israelites, whatever you'd like to call them, were going to be blessed. Now, how were they going to be a blessing to all nations? Well, first of all, they knew that eventually the seed of the woman that was promised in Genesis chapter 15, uh, I'm sorry, Genesis 3, 15, The seed would eventually come through their family line and would reign uh, and win victory over sin. But until then, God tells them, you are going to be a blessing to other nations by becoming a kingdom of priests, he says in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. They were to show all nations who God truly was. But then he goes further, if you are going to do that, if you're going to be a kingdom of priests, if you're going to be separate, if you are going to be a blessing to all nations, you have to be different from all nations. If you are not different from all nations, then you cannot be a blessing to all nations. And he puts it simply in this way, you need to be holy. In Exodus 32, we see how Israel broke that covenant. They worshiped the golden calf. And uh, again, the punishment came through. Tabernacle is eventually completed. But then the book of Exodus ends with Moses not being able to enter into God's presence on behalf of the people. And look at how Leviticus 1, 1 picks up. And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation. Moses has still not been able to enter in. The purpose of Leviticus is God providing a way for sinners to find forgiveness, atonement for their sin, 
He's providing a way for them to be the holy nation that they were called to be. And most importantly, to be able to have a relationship with a holy God. Now, before we go any further, I think we need to take some time to talk about what the Bible means when it says that God is holy. And you can't read Leviticus without understanding that the main theme, remember that we were talking about that? The main theme of Leviticus is holiness. Some form of the word holy is used almost a hundred times or around a hundred times in Leviticus. To be holy means to be set apart, to be sanctified, to be unique. Now in the Bible, the word holy is mainly used to describe separation from sin, to be set apart from sin, to be set apart from wickedness or any type of evil. Now with this in mind, it's obvious then why God would be described as holy. He is entirely pure from sin. He's entirely clean from wickedness and set apart from evil. But not only is God holy, he is so holy that his presence, the area around him, is holy as well. Man, however, is not holy. That is not our default setting. Uh, man is born in sin. When God, you could say, is pure from sin, we are born in sin. When you could say God is clean from wickedness and set apart from evil, we are prone to wickedness and evil. And the book of Leviticus highlights this contrast between sinful man and God by using words like clean and unclean, and pure, defiled, holy, and profane. All of that to say this, if sinful man wants to be in God's holy presence, then they too have to be holy. The sin has to be dealt with, and that is what the book of Leviticus is really all about. So in this book, along with God's holiness, we also see God's mercy, in that he is going again above and beyond to give sinful man an opportunity to be in his presence. Leviticus shows us more than, more than, I think, any other book in the Old Testament that we can have our sins forgiven, that God wants to forgive us of our sins, that God wants to fellowship with us. In our study of Genesis and Exodus, we'll put it this way. We ran into a lot of action. We ran into a lot of stories, a lot of very compelling stories, entertaining stories, stories that uh, really just jump off the page at you. There's not much of that in Leviticus. So just get that in our minds right now. Leviticus is much more instructive. Therefore, rather than looking at each chapter in detail, we are mostly going to point out how each chapter supports the main purpose. And what is the main purpose? Is how to stay clean or how to be pure, how to be holy, how to be, how to be made pure or made clean again after you've been, become unclean. And then once you are clean, how do you enter into God's presence in the right way? All of those things are, are, are covered in this book of Leviticus. Leviticus is not only instructive, but we must understand this as well. It is extremely symbolic. It is a very symbolic book. Every detail 
of the sacrifices, the offerings, even what the priests wear, uh, what they do with the ashes of the offerings after it's all done, the feast days, the day of atonement, the elements involved, all of it, all of those details point to Jesus Christ. So I want you to write this down or make a note of it in your mind as you study the book of Leviticus on your own throughout this time. When you lose sight of Jesus in Leviticus, the details seem unnecessary. The punishments seem very harsh and the book seems a little boring. But when you see how everything points to Jesus, all of the details become purposeful. All of the punishments are just and the book comes to life. So when you read Leviticus, ask yourself over and over, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus in Leviticus? And throughout these five major offerings in part one, chapters one through seven, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the purpose of the offerings, the elements of the offerings, different practical things that are brought out. And hopefully I bring out some things that maybe you've never thought of before. But in each one, we are going to ask ourselves, in this major offering, where is Jesus? Where is he? How is he pictured? So let's go ahead and look at the first one given in chapter 1. The first major offering given in chapter 1 was the burnt offering. The burnt offering. We see in chapter 3, some, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, in verse 3, something about this offering is that it was a voluntary offering. It was a free will offering. This kind of offering was practiced long before the law was given, as far as a burnt offering is concerned. We have examples of burnt offerings from, from Abel. We have examples of burnt offerings from Abraham and, and many more. The purpose of the burnt offering, we see in verse 4, was for atonement. To atone for the sins of the giver. It was a voluntary way of saying, I am a sinner and I deserve to die, but this animal is my substitute. This animal is the propitiation for my sin. The atonement, uh, the blood of this animal is for the remission, the atonement of my sin. The offering could be cattle, it says in verse number two. It could be from the flocks, it says in verse number 10. It could even be from fowls in verse 14. These options weren't, basically what these options were is, notice how they descend in price. Cattle were very expensive. Flocks, as far as sheep and goats, not so much. Fowls, even the poorest of the poor could afford those, even though every single one of those in their class, the, the fowls for the lower class, the flocks for the middle class, the cattle for the upper class, if you will, if you want to look at it that way, each one would be a sacrifice to them. Each one would cost something for them. These options descended in price to make provision for the rich as well as the poor, and that shows us something. For God, it's not about equal gifts. There are different, there are different people in the church, and there are different people in, the, in, in this group of the nation of Israel. Not everybody could afford a young bullock. Not everybody could afford maybe a, a, a sheep or a goat. 
but everybody could afford a, a fowl, a pigeon, a, a turtle dove. And basically what God is bringing out, it's not about all giving the same thing. It's about sacrificing. It's not about equal gifts. It is about equal sacrifice. And that's why tithe makes so much sense. For all of us, it's just 10%. It's all the same. It is an equalizer to everybody. Now ask ourselves, where is Christ in the burnt offering? Here is where you have to look at the details. And it's the details, if we're honest with, e with each other, we just kind of read over. But when you read in chapter 1, you'll see some details. First of all, here's a detail. It was voluntary. Well, how does that point to Christ? Well, that shows how, that points how Jesus laid down his life for us. Nobody made him do that. Nobody took his life from him. He did it for us. As God, he laid down his life voluntarily. How about another detail here? It was male. The, the burnt offering could only be male, pointing towards the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. Whether it was cattle, flocks, or fowls, it had to be spotless without blemish. I'm not even going to say why that points to Jesus. You know why that points to Jesus. And also, the entire animal was to be burned down to the ashes, pointing how Jesus gave everything for us. What about chapter 2? The meat offering, also known as the meal offering. This offering was also voluntary. Uh, you could see that in, in chapter 2. Um, let's see in verse 1. And when any will offer a meat offering unto the Lord. This is also a voluntary free will offering. Uh, take a note of this. Even though it is called a meat offering, there are no animals involved. The main ingredient in this offering is actually flour. Now, notice the purpose of the meat offering. Think about this with me. Again, don't miss the details. The burnt offering was dealing with animals, shedding of blood, whether of cattle, flocks, or fowls. The meat offering, or the meal offering, doesn't have any animals involved. So notice in chapter 2, there is no mention of atonement. Because without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So the meat offering is not for atonement. It must have a different purpose, and surely it does. The meat offering was the work of man's hands. This meal offering, it's, it reads like a recipe. And it has fine flour, oil, frankincense, and salt. And you could offer this offering in one of five ways. You could have it all mixed but raw. This would have been perfect for people maybe who were traveling from a long way. You could bake it in a pan. You could bake it in an oven. You could fry it in a pan. You could uh, do it as a first fruits offering, it says later in uh, verse 14. Uh, and this, this kind of had its own recipe to that. But all of it was the work of man's hands. And remember, the work of man's hands can never atone for sin. It can only come through the shedding of blood. It can only come through a sacrifice for you. Now, while the burnt offering displayed the need for a holy life, think about it. If men lived a holy life, there would never be a need for a burnt offering. So when we brought that burnt offering, when the people brought that burnt offering, it was a reminder, I am a sinner and I deserve hell. I am not holy in my natural state. This 
animal is taking my punishment. So every single time that they brought that forward of their own free will, it would remind them of their need for a holy life. Whenever they brought forth a meal offering or a meat offering made of their own hands, it would remind them of their need for holy service. It's when we live a holy life, we must also allow that to come through in our service. Read Haggai, and Haggai uh, calls out to these to these uh, priests in the temple, and he says, "If somebody makes a sacrifice with unclean hands, what happens to the sacrifice?" And he says, "Well, the sacrifice becomes unclean." You're absolutely right. Our service must be holy as our life is holy. Uh, again, we talked about how the offering was made of the fine flour, oil, and frankincense in verse 1, salt in verse 13. There was to be no leaven and no honey in these cakes in verse 11. So where is Christ in the meat offering? Again, it was voluntary. And Jesus not only willingly gave his life, Jesus willingly served his father throughout his life, and he was submissive to his father. No leaven or honey because Jesus had no sin and saw no corruption. We understand that leaven is usually a picture. There's one time in the Gospels where God compares the kingdom of heaven to leaven, um, but usually leaven is a picture of sin. Uh, it is shown how uh, it's, you know, it's an enzyme that grows and grows and grows and you just cannot control it. From the smallest thing, given enough time, it is going to affect the whole. That is what sin does. And that's why leaven was not allowed in these sacrifices. Jesus had no sin and he saw no corruption. When you burnt honey, it, would give off a, it gives off a very bitter smell. That would take away the sweet savor that the Lord talks about in chapter 2. So there was no honey involved. Another detail here is that a portion of this offering was shared with the priests. With the burnt offering, it was burnt down completely to the ashes. With this one, a portion was shared with the priests, showing that we can partake of Christ's service. Now remember, you cannot partake of Christ's service without taking part in his suffering. Chapter 3 talks about the peace offering. This was also voluntary, a free will offering, and you can see that um, reading through this chapter. What is the purpose of the peace offering? The purpose of the peace offering was to show us the results that come from atonement for sin. When there is atonement for sin, we have peace with God and we have peace with our fellow man. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 27, 6 and 7, an amazing detail is brought out. The peace offering was always practiced with the burnt offering. You could not offer a peace offering unless you had first offered a burnt offering because without atonement, there is no peace. Isaiah chapter 48 verse 22 and 57 verse 21 says, There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. This peace offering could be of cattle, sheep, and goat. And unlike the burnt offering, it could be male or female. Notice that in verse 1 of chapter 3. So the burnt offering, only male. This offering, male or female. So when you fail to see where is Jesus in this, it gets confusing. Okay, why can we offer only male in verse 1 for the burnt offering, but then we can do male and female from chapter 3? This is really confusing. Just take a, just take a step back and think, where is Jesus 
in all of this. Like the meat offering, this offering was also divided. It was a portion that was given to God. The best portion was given to God in, in verse 9 and 10. A portion went to the priests. A portion was then returned to the giver. So where is Christ in the peace offering? Well, first of all, we know that the only way today we can have peace with God is through Jesus. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's talk about the fact that this offering could be male or female. So when an atonement was being made, that is showing Jesus Christ as the Son of God, His sacrifice for sin. The peace offering is what happens after the atonement. And what does the Bible say? Now that Jesus has died, was buried, and, was rose, and has risen again, what does the Bible say in Galatians 3.28? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Are you seeing what I mean? When you ask yourself, where is Jesus? Things begin to make sense. This offering was done in the tabernacle. Notice that as you read throughout chapter 3. Why is that an important detail? That's an important detail because the peace offering was also something that the pagans practiced. The heathen people practiced peace offerings as well. However, even the Egyptians did, did peace offerings. But what they would do is they would do these offerings in their home. They would do the offerings at their house or in uh, maybe out, out in public somewhere. And they were hoping that their God, whoever it was, or their idol, would accept their peace offering, but they had no idea that God could come down in anger in their mind. Hopefully, our God, little g, will appreciate this peace offering. God says, okay, we'll do a peace offering too, but you're coming to my house. You are not initiating this peace. I am initiating the peace. I am the one who is reaching out to you. You come to me. And, and we will have peace uh, one with another as long as your sins are atoned for. Those were the first three offerings. So think of them with me. The burnt offering, the meat offering, the peace offering. And remember the purpose of them all. The burnt offering was for atonement. The meat offering was to show us our need for holy service, not just a holy life. And then the peace offering shows us what happens after we are atoned for our sin. We can have peace with God. So those first three offerings, they've all been voluntary, and they've really dealt with sinners in a general sense because it was voluntary. The next two major offerings are going to deal with specific personal sins. Chapter 4 talks about an offering called the sin offering. This offering was a command. This was not voluntary. When you sinned in such a way that chapter 4 is going to bring out, and even chapters 5, 6, and 7, you needed to bring forward this offering. This offering was offered at all of the feasts that the Lord eventually tells the uh, nation of Israel about. It was offered at all of the priestly dedications. It was offered at the Day of Atonement. It was a very uh, important offering, the sin offering. What was the purpose of the sin offering? This sin offering was to cover for ignorant sins. Four separate times in chapter 4, the Bible uses the word ignorance. In chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, verse 13, 
verse 22 and verse 27. So chapter 4, verse 2, verse 13, verse 22 and 27, the Bible uses the word ignorance, a sin that was done without the person's knowledge. Maybe they didn't realize they had done it. Maybe they didn't realize that it was a sin in the first place. So that is what the sin offering was for. Uh, and this teaches us two really important truths about man. First of all, we don't even have to try to sin. We just sin. It's in our nature. Uh, we could go throughout the day thinking, oh, I, I did a really good job today. And I really think if we saw our lives through God's eyes, we would be absolutely ashamed. We are sinners, period. And it's just a part of our nature. It comes out. And this part shows that. Another thing that this sin offering shows is that ignorance is not an excuse for sin. Now, the Lord does look on sins of ignorance a little bit differently. Time out. Sin is sin. Don't get me wrong, but think of even what Paul said. I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. Uh, so what the Lord is bringing out here is ignorance, it, it doesn't make it excusable. Sin is still sin. You are still required to find atonement or to bring atonement for that sin. It's no excuse. Notice how the sacrifice varied depending on who you were when you read in chapter 4. Verse 3 through 12 talks about when a priest sins ignorantly, he was to bring an offering of a young bullock. If the whole congregation at one time sinned ignorantly in verse 13 through 21, the entire congregation also brought forward a young bullock. If you were a ruler over the people of Israel in, in verse 22 through 26, you brought a male kid of the goats. If you are one of the common people, in verse 27 through 35, you brought a female kid of the goats. And this shows us how God held his leadership, especially his priests, to a very high standard, a higher standard. Here's an example. Uh, Moses smote the rock. And God did not give him any break on that. He says, no, you are not going to go into the promised land because of that. Even when Moses comes at, to him afterward and says, Lord, will you forgive me about it? He says, no, and don't bring it up to me again. Why? Because Moses was the leader. Moses was held to a higher standard. To whom much is given, much shall be required. And especially the priests. What is this book called? Leviticus. The word Leviticus means pertaining to the Levites. And the Levites were the priests of the nation. And think about this with me today. How does this apply to us? We are now considered and called by God priests. Listen to this, to this verse with me in 1 Peter chapter 2. And think with me, does this verse in 1 Peter chapter 2 sound familiar to you? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, in a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who have called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Does that not call you back to Exodus 19, verse 6, where he says, I want you to be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? We, the church, is now a part of that. We have not taken place of Israel. Read the next verse in 1 Peter 2, verse 10. 
it's, it's not that we have taken place of Israel. That is not true. The church, the Gentiles have been grafted in uh, through Jesus' grace and mercy. We have been grafted into Abraham's family spiritually. Where is Christ in the sin offering? A detail of the sin offering is while a portion was burnt on the altar, the rest of the animal was carried outside the camp and burned. And you can see that scattered throughout chapter 4 in verse, I believe here, verse 12. And in verse 21, you even see it in chapter 6, verse 11, that portions of the sin offering were taken out of the camp and burned. The reason was because that portion of the animal represented the sin that had been committed. Turn with me, if you will, keep your place in Leviticus, but turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 13. I hope during this time, even though that you are at home, you are on your couches, that you are following along in your Bible. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Understanding that detail of the sin offering, that a portion was taken without the camp and burned because it represented the sin, here is how we can find Christ in the sin offering. Look in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Golgotha, Calvary, was outside of the gates of Jerusalem, not within the gates of Jerusalem. Verse 13, let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Where is Jesus in the sin offering? He is a reminder that he bore all of our sins outside of Jerusalem to that cross as the final sin offering. Chapters 5 through 7 cover the trespass offering and the sin offering. Both the sin offering and the trespass offering are spoken in these chapters, but this chapter, chapter 5, is where the trespass offering is introduced. Now, the sin and trespass offerings uh, had many things in common, and that is why they can be spoken of really in the same breath. That is why chapter 6 of Leviticus, I'm sorry, chapter 7 of Leviticus begins with the word words, likewise, this is the law of the trespass offering, because chapter 6 ended talking about the sin offering. Well, the trespass offering was so similar as far as its characteristics and its elements were concerned, that is why they can be spoken of kind of interchangeably in chapters 5 through 7. The main difference between the sin offering and the trespass offering was this. Sins were against God. Trespasses were against God and another person. Think about the word trespassing, a no trespassing sign. What is it saying? Do not cross this line. So to trespass against somebody was to cross a line with somebody, to break their trust. Another word in the Bible is called transgression. I know I used this illustration maybe a month ago when Jacob takes his wives with him, Leah and Rachel, and runs away from Laban in the middle of the night. And unbeknownst to Jacob, Rachel takes some of Laban's gods. Laban comes and he accuses Jacob, why did you take my daughters? Why did you take my cattle in the middle of the night? Why didn't you let me say goodbye to you? And on top of that, why did you take my gods? Now Jacob said, I didn't, I didn't take your gods. You can look through any of my things. And if you find your gods with anybody, they can be your slave. You can do whatever they want to them. Now Rachel hides those gods and when Laban can't find them, 
when you look, Jacob comes up to Laban and he says, where is my trespass? What have I done to break trust with you? What have I done to bring damage to you? That's a really good example of this. Sins were against God. Trespasses are against God and man. A trespass violated someone else's rights. It violated somebody else's property in a way that caused damage. Therefore, a sin offering required a sacrifice to God. A trespass offering not only required sacrifice to God, but it also required restitution. It required payback to the person who was wronged. This restitution came in two steps. First of all, whatever was taken or whatever was damaged needed to be returned. And it, or if it couldn't be returned, if it was too much damage uh, done, an equivalent replacement had to be given. It says in chapter 6, verse 4, you can read that there. But then also this restitution came along with paying back what was taken. The person also who, who did the wrong had to give an extra fifth on top of what they took or what they damaged. And you see that in chapter 6, verse 5. Otherwise, people, let's say for instance, I stole somebody's sheep. So I, I steal someone's sheep and I run away with it. That is a trespass against that person. I'm violating their trust. I'm violating their property. Let's say I get caught with it. If the only thing I had to do was give it back, well, there's not really, that's not really that big of a deal. But when you have to add then a fifth on, on, on top of that, that is where the punishment came in. The fifth on top of that was to bring immediate punishment down upon the trespasser. After restitution was made, a trespass offering was then given to God in chapter 6, verse 6, and only then in chapter 6, verse 7, would the priest make an atonement. So we must ask ourselves again, where is Christ in the trespass offering? Well, Jesus not only brings peace between God and man, or, or let's, let's use ourselves as a personal example. Jesus has not only brought peace between ourselves and God, Jesus also desires to bring peace between ourselves and our fellow believers, our fellow man. When Jesus was telling his disciples how he was going to die in chapter 13 of John, uh, he says, listen, I'm not going to be with you for much longer. I'm going to a place that you cannot come with me. And I'm giving you a new commandment that you love one another. And he says, hereby will all people know that ye are my disciples, that ye love one another. That is how we see how Jesus fulfilled the trespass offering. He, after he died, was buried, rose again, and ascended, gave a new commandment, love one another. And that is why he also says uh, several times in the New Testament, all of the law and the prophets can be hung on these two commandments. Love God with all your heart, with all your might, uh, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to trespass against them. You're not going to kill them. You're not going to covet what they have. You're not going to steal. You're not going to bear false witness against them. All of it can be replaced with two things. Love your neighbor. And before Jesus came, we didn't understand truly what it meant to love somebody, uh, to have that agape love. That is where Jesus is in the trespass offering. Many people are content 
to get right with God and never get right with the person that they wronged or never get right with the person that they have done damage to. But what does the Bible say? When you come forward to the altar and you want to ask something of the Lord in prayer or when he was talking to the Jews in the Gospels and he says, and you want to make some type of sacrifice and you remember that you have awed against your brother, you leave that sacrifice there, go get it right with your brother and then you come back and you speak with me. These offerings, uh, sin and trespass offering, and all scattered throughout chapters 5 through 7, were for sins of commission as well as sins of omission. So sins of commission, something that you, in action that you have done. Um, sins of omission, an inaction. So chapter 4 talks about sins of commission. Uh, now, even though they may have been done in ignorance, they were still sin and they still had to be dealt with. Chapter 5, verse 1 through 13, talks about some sins of omission. Now, this list is in no way um, exhaustive, but it really just gives illustrations that would cause the people to understand and to think, and it needs to cause us to understand and think today. Even inaction, even the smallest inaction, something that we may not even think twice about, can cause us to be unclean before God. And when you are unclean before God, you cannot have fellowship with God. And that still applies to us today. So what are some of these examples of the sins of omission? Well, verse 1 of chapter 5 talks about when you know the truth about a matter, but you refuse to bear witness of it. So a sin of commission would be to bear false witness against your neighbor. Now God is bringing out a fact it is just as wrong uh, bearing false witness is obviously wrong, but it is just as wrong, just as bad, just as sinful. It will make you just as unclean to refuse to bear truthful witness if you know what is true. Uh, chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. Let's read these verses together. Chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. Or if a soul touch any unclean thing, whether it be a carcass of an unclean beast or a carcass of, an unclean, of unclean cattle or the carcass of unclean creeping things. If it be hidden from him, uh, he also shall be unclean and guilty. Or if he touch the uncleanness of man, whatsoever uncleanness it be, that a man shall be defiled withal, and it be hid from him. So twice in those two words it says that, and it be hid from him. When he knoweth of it, then he shall be guilty. So in these verses, this is really the sin of omission of care. The implication in verse 2 and 3 of chapter 5 is that somebody touched something that was unclean. They didn't mean to or they didn't know that it was unclean at the time. But God comes in and says, you are still unclean. And this teaches us, and God is telling, too many people are flippant and careless in our lives when the Bible tells us we are to walk circumspectly. We are to be sober and to be vigilant. So if a situation came up where somebody touched something and then maybe a day later, oh, I didn't know that was unclean or I didn't, I, I didn't know that. Well, it was. It was unclean and you are guilty of it and you need to bring forward an offering because of it. Just because we didn't mean to sin or just because we didn't know it was sin at the time, God says we're still guilty. You're still guilty of that sin. And when you come to the knowledge of that sin, you have to get it right. And that applies to us today. Uh, chapter 5, verse 4 talks about the sin of making hasty promises. 
or oaths. David makes one of these in 1 Samuel chapter 25. He makes a, a really hasty, he says, this is what I'm going to do in, in 1 Samuel chapter 25 verse 22 and uh, against the man named Nabal. And Nabal's wife, Abigail, comes up and stops him and he says, thank you for talking to me. Otherwise, I'd, I would have I done this. He made a hasty vow. And the Bible talks about this. Somebody is, again, not careful. Oh, this applies to us. They were not being careful about what they were saying. What does the Bible say? In a multitude of words, there wanteth not sin. Somebody in this case, God says, I'm going to give you an illustration of somebody just talking in casual conversation, and they say something that by the law would bind them to a vow, that by the law would bind them to make that vow come true. And they just said it in haste. They didn't mean it as a vow. They didn't think about it as a vow. They were just being careless. Well, God says as soon as they figure out about that, they need to confess it as sin and they need to get it right. Chapter 6, 1 through 7 shifts from talking about sins of ignorance and it starts focusing on premeditated sins. And that's why the Bible says, uh, David says, um, cleanse thou me from secret faults. Just things that I didn't know, ignorance. But then he also says, keep me from presumptuous sins. Sins that we know, and David definitely knew what a presumptuous sin was uh, in his life. And we can think of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. We can think of ourselves how many times there are sometimes we just make mistakes because we don't even have to try to sin. We're just sinners. But there are also times where we know exactly what we're doing. And that is what chapter 6 is going to begin to talk about. Um, it focuses on premeditated sins. Now, with all of these examples of, of the offerings, of the illustration that God gives, notice when you read through it, confession is of the utmost importance. And especially you begin to see that in chapter 5, verse 5. Um, the man had to confess what he had done as sin. Why is that important? Well, especially with sins of ignorance, but with any sin, really, we have a tendency to sweep it under the rug. We have a tendency to say, oh, it's not as bad as it really is. And we don't confess it or we call it something that doesn't sound as bad. We don't say people are drunkards anymore. We say they have the disease of alcoholism. No, it's a sin is what it is. We don't call it uh, uh, adultery anymore. We don't call it fornication anymore. We don't call it uh, so many of these sins what the Bible calls them. Uh, and we try to just make them seem a little bit nicer than they really are. And God says, when you come forward to me, confession is very important. You need to be specific. Still applies to us today. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's forgiveness will never run out. He says, all you, I will forgive you every time. Here's the deal. You have to tell me what you did. When you pray and you confess your sins, tell your sins to God as if he didn't know what they were. That is what confessions were, uh, confession is. Be specific with him. This is what I did. This is what I am. This is what I need forgiveness from. Our nature is just to say, especially with ignorant sins, our nature is just to say, oops, oops, I didn't mean it that way. I didn't mean it to come across that way. And we just kind of move on. But every sin, 
demands confession, whether by commission or omission, whether it's against God, whether it's against God and man, whether it is done ignorantly or presumptuously. Sin is sin, Leviticus is showing us, and it always makes people unclean, and they could not fellowship with the holy God while they were unclean. The rest of chapter 6 and 7 give a lot more details of the different offerings. It talks about in uh, chapter uh, 6, verse 12 and 13, the fire for the burnt offering was always to be lit. These burnt offerings were done daily, showing us that God is always ready. God is always willing to forgive us of our sins. Chapter 6, verse 19 through 23 talks about how every priest offered a meat offering daily. The moment that he was brought into the priesthood, he offered a meat offering, and then as long as he held the service, he offered a meat offering daily. Think about that on your own. Why would that be important? What was the purpose of the meat offering? The purpose of the meat offering was to show us the need for holy service. Can we understand why a priest, above all others, would need to be reminded of that every single day? And remember, Christian, we are kings and priests, Revelation says. You are a royal priesthood. We have that responsibility and accountability upon ourselves today. We must always remember daily that what we do represents the Lord and it must be done in a holy manner. Chapter 6, verse 24 through 30 gives more detail about the sin offering. The sin offerings that the people gave were actually food for the priests. Uh, when they would bring in, the, when the common people um, and the rulers would bring in their sin offering, the priests would eat those sin offerings in the tabernacle, in the holy place. And that represented how the sins uh, of the people were borne by the priests to the Lord. However, and remember in chapter 4, when the sin offerings were divided, um, it talked about a sin offering given by the priests, a sin offering given by the whole congregation, one by the rulers, and then one by the common people. So the rulers and the common people were food for the priests. However, the priests' sin offering and the whole congregation's sin offering, which would include the priests, were not to be eaten. Um, a priest was not going to sin, give an offering, and then benefit from it. No, that's not how it works. Sin does not benefit us in any way possible. Chapter 7 covers a multitude of details, but don't get lost in it. Remember the importance of the details to point forward to Christ. It talks about the sin and trespass offering in verse 1 through 6. It talks about the priest's portions from the offerings in verse 7 through 10. It talks about the peace offering, more details about the peace offering in uh, verse 11 through 21. And notice in chapter 7, verse 11 through 21, especially in verses 19, 20, and 21, the care that needed to be brought to avoid uncleanness. There were so many things when you brought your peace offering. What's the, what's the good thing of bringing forward a peace offering if while you're bringing forward a peace offering, you do something that then makes you unclean? and negates the peace offering. When you're unclean, you can't have peace with God. So notice when you make the atonement for sin and then you're in this little part where you're bringing forward a voluntary peace offering, it's so important that you stay holy during that time. Don't make, don't sin, don't do anything wrong. It is most holy to the Lord, the Bible says. I love this towards the end of chapter, uh, chapter seven in verse 22 through 29. 
God is wrapping up everything. And he says, let's just talk about all of these offerings kind of in a whole. Things that apply to all of the offerings. First of all, in all of these offerings, priests, when you partake of the meat offering and the sin offering or the trespass offering, or uh, even the givers, when you partake of your peace offering, when a portion of it is given back to you, no fat. You're not eating any of the fat. Now, if you want to use fat for other purposes, um, in, and it says that in verse uh, 24 and 25, if you want to use the fat for animals for other purposes, you can do so. But as far as the offerings are concerned, you don't do anything with the fat. You burn it and you give that all to the Lord. And then also no blood. Don't do anything with the blood. It's never to be eaten. You do not use it for another purpose. Why? Because the blood is the life. Blood was the life of the animal and life belongs to God. Remember what holy means, to be set apart. And God is the God of life. He says that blood is to bring atonement. That blood is for my purposes only, not for yours. So do not eat of the blood. I love what it says in chapter 7, verse 30. The Bible says, His own hands shall bring the offerings of the Lord made by fire. This was talking about all of the children of Israel. You know what this showed them? Listen, you're not going to send somebody to atone for your sins by proxy. You're not going to say, oh, honey, I'm just feeling a little tired today, so will you take my offering for me? No. It is your sin, your atonement that needs to be brought down. You are the one who brings that forward. This whole idea, especially in the Catholic religion, that you can have penance for other people, and there are many other religions that say that you can pray for other people and God will use... Uh, will we'll forgive you on their behalf? No, no, that's, that's not how it works. Sin must be dealt with by the sinner, by the individual inter, uh, sinner. Now, Leviticus chapter 7, verse 37 and 38, and we are done tonight, gives a review. It says, this is the law, and notice the five major offerings here. This is the law of the burnt offering, of the meat offering, and of the sin offering, and of the trespass offering, and of the consecrations, which we had talked about, the sacrifice of the, the peace offerings, which, which is um, in there as far as the consecrations are concerned, as far as the priests. Which the Lord commanded Moses in Mount Sinai in the day that he commanded the children of Israel to offer their oblations unto the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. I misspoke. The, the five major offerings are the ones that gave you the consecration. This is something, is something separate. The five major offerings are the burnt offering, meat offering, sin offering, trespass offering, and peace offering. The consecrations were mentioned in, uh, in that portion, talking about how priests bring the peace offerings to begin with and then every single day. That is what it is making mention to. Now, if you were to read... Leviticus 1 through 7 on your own, even after this overview, you are going to have an information overload. There are details everywhere. Your mind kind of goes back and forth like a pinball machine trying to keep up with it. But this is what it takes. This is what God is saying. Listen, if sinful man wants to be in my presence, this is what it takes. God is not making this complicated on purpose. Sin complicates things. When he made man in the beginning, he made man upright. 
and everything was perfect. All you had to do was trust my definition of good and evil. Just don't eat of that tree. That's it. And none of this would have been necessary. But as soon as sin came in, it complicated things. And what these people were finding out was that being in fellowship with God was no small matter. But of all the people who could see the benefit of obeying these offerings and following these offerings, surely it was these people. After all that they have seen God do for them, after all the miracles, after seeing his presence on Mount Sinai and the power uh, that he had, of all the people in, in the nations of the world that could or that would have a great um, a desire and a great incentive to follow all this, it would have been the, the Israelites. And for a while, in many ways, they do follow along with these offerings. Now we know what happens later. After they sinned at Mount Sinai, we saw the repentance and dismay of the people when they heard God tell them, my presence will not go with you. They understood what that meant and they mourned. They saw it as evil tidings. And these five main sacrifices gave those people a way to be clean again. They could be clean again through the sacrifice of the innocent for the guilty, the unblemished for the blemished, the clean for the unclean, the holy for the defiled. And the Israelites must have been glad that there was a way to become clean and holy in God's eyes again, even after they had sinned through these offerings. But throughout the rest of the book, God is really going to bring out several times, listen, the best way to be holy is just to avoid sin, period. Yes, there is a way to come back after that and praise the Lord for that, but it always is going to cost you something. Sin always costs you something. It takes you further than, when you, than you want to go. It, it keeps you longer than you want to stay. And it makes you pay more than you want to pay every single time. Praise the Lord that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But sin always brings damage. The best way to stay clean, the best way to be holy, is just to avoid it. And that is what God is going to bring out in many areas throughout the rest of the book. These offerings have showed us, even after we sin, there is a way back. And remember especially, you can't read the details of God in these, uh, details that God gives in these chapters without seeing Jesus and without thanking him and, and having your heart fill with joy and love and, and thankfulness to the Lord by seeing that what Jesus did in one act of dying on the cross did away with all of this. There was no need for it anymore. He was the most perfect sacrifice. He was a lamb that didn't just take away the sin of one. It didn't just cover for a day. It didn't just cover until the next time you sinned. It wasn't just at a great big day, the day of atonement that they would have once a year. Jesus was the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. It is an incredible thing to read Leviticus and understand how Jesus, everything in Leviticus is hidden underneath the shadow of the cross, pointing forward to what God was going to do. And now we can look back and still see the practical implications that come from sin and the damage of sin. But thank the Lord for what he has done for us and how in one act he split that veil down. And now we can come boldly before the throne of grace because of what he did.
Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.